This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Hi, my name is Clarissa Mall. I am the wife of author and former CT editor Rob Mall. I became a widow in July 2019 when my husband Rob fell to his death in a hiking accident in Mount Rainier National Park. My name is Daniel Harrell. I'm editor-in-chief at Christianity Today. My wife Dawn died of pancreas cancer in April of 2019. We're here talking about being surprised by grief and the many ways that grief does surprise us. I'm going to talk a little bit about Clarissa's loss today. And so tell us, how did you lose Rob? I feel like surprised by grief is the uh, theme of my life now. Rob and I love to travel and we, in 2019, took a cross-country road trip with our four kids in our camper. We had just moved to Boston the year before from Seattle, and so we were really excited about heading back home. You know, the first year after a move is you're still very much in transition, and it felt like going home. And we spent three great weeks out in the Pacific Northwest camping around the Olympic Peninsula and visiting with friends. And kind of the capstone of our trip for Rob was supposed to be this long ridgeline hike that he was going to take with a friend. They were both really experienced. So Rob was super excited about that. And he woke up Friday morning, July 19th, and kissed me goodbye in our camper and headed out for a hike. And um, he never came back. He fell to his death off Barrier Peak in Mount Rainier National Park, an area that he had hiked a lot in in the past. Not that specific hike, but in that area, it was familiar to him. He loved it. And that evening, two chaplains arrived at my campsite and they gave me the news that no mom of four kids ever wants to hear that Rob wasn't coming home, that he had died. Mm. I imagine there's a lot more in that story, but not a lot more that you want to talk about. Yeah. I think early on, I decided that there just needed to be this kind of a sacred boundary for me. Early on in that experience of grief, I thought about Mary, the mother of Jesus, and how she's told that a a sword would pierce her heart also. And we're told in the gospel that she looks at her growing son and she thinks about his life and her life, and she treasures all these things and ponders them in her heart. And I think as a mom, as a wife now experiencing grief, there's just some stuff that's really sacred that you squirrel away, that you hide away in your heart, and you just, you can't find the words to say those things. And I think um, we share a lot in our culture. And so it's hard sometimes when people erect boundaries like that. But I think for me, it's been a place of health and a sacred space for me to grieve personally and, and with my children too. Yeah. You know, I'm listening to that and thinking about Dawn's death and being with her and when she died and how holy that was, you used the language of sacred. How does sacred differ from private? Oh boy, that's a good question. I mean, I think for me, sacred is about 
holiness. It's about the place where the veil is really thin. And I'm naturally a private person. I'm introverted. And so there are lots of parts about my private life that I don't share even with friends. But there's something about kind of stepping into the Holy of Holies where you notice that veil is thin, where you see God not face to face, but you see him like Moses from behind, right? As he passes by, and there are no words for that. It's a sense of, I need to take off my shoes here for some reason, because God has passed by or God is present here. And I think for me, that happened um, in some moments when my children were born. And it also happened in the moments after I learned that Rob had died too. Yeah, that's right. You know, when Dawn got her diagnosis, that was probably our moment of shock. But I think one of the things that struck us early on was what was God going to do with this? And Dawn would have been very clear about her future. She knew she was going to die. She saw that and accepted that without fear and with a sense of sacredness and holiness. And in some sense, I think that gave her some courage that her dying well, as she really wanted to do, needed to somehow bear witness to God in her life. So I think we felt comfortable sharing those things that, you know, bore witness to how God was at work in our life through our grief. But at the same time, I think we were aware of that certain sort of, you know, voyeurism that can emerge. Yeah, you mentioned voyeurism, and I think that was something that really early on, I was grateful to have a tribe of people who protected me from that because Rob died in a public place. It was in the news. It was in the news. Um, A friend of ours actually who lived about three hours away came to the funeral, and I wasn't expecting it. And when I saw him in the foyer of the church, I said, how did you find out? And he said, I heard it on NPR. Mm. I thought, Oh, (laughs) it's just like a gut punch. Like everybody knows. And, you know, because Rob died in our old hometown area, we had an amazing community of support there that knew his story. And it was a sense of feeling known. But when we returned across the country to our home in Boston, I definitely encountered that sense of voyeurism. You know, a handyman who came over to the house and said, so how did he die? That's not what I want to talk about. And I think that because we're not really conversant in death and dying as a culture, we say super awkward things to people who are really traumatized by the loss of their loved one. And there is a voyeurism, I think, because we are kind of desensitized to death and dying through death-obsessed media culture and uh, even entertainment. We don't realize what really is painfully private anymore. You know, the other day I was coming down the freeway and I came upon something I hadn't seen in the longest time, which I saw so frequently growing up, and that was a, a funeral procession. And I remember as a kid, we'd come upon a funeral procession and the protocol was you would hold back, you would make space, you would, you know, respect in a sense what was happening. But in this case, there was the funeral procession and, you know, cars are honking screaming by, looking to cut in because they've got to get where they've got to get. And sort of to your point, there's this sense that the details around Rob's death, you know, given the fact that they were newsworthy, pushes aside that kind of respect for the person, it seems, 
and for what you're going through for the sake of, you know, getting that information and finding out what happened and being able to somehow relish in that in a voyeuristic fashion. Yeah, I think a lot of my choice to be public about grief and about my experience came from this realization that there aren't a lot of people who are willing to talk about it. Certainly not in my generation. I'm born on the cusp of the millennial generation and it was hard to find resources that would be helpful. At some point I thought, you know what? Nobody knows how to do this. And maybe if I just stumble out in front, (laughs) we can figure out how to do this together in a way that glorifies God and serves the church. Yeah, that's awesome. So talk about those early days of grief. Death arrives without warning. What was it like? I think it's trauma. <laughs> For our family, that's what uh, catastrophic loss looked like, was the classic signs of trauma. You've got disruptions in your sleep patterns, disruptions in your eating patterns, disruptions in relationships. And I think these are a lot of the things that people experience, but don't talk a whole lot about. Like, I don't want to eat anymore. And people keep bringing me casseroles. What do I do with this food? My parents lived nearby and I was able to say to my mom at one point, could you just take all the leftovers away? Because I can't eat a meal a second time. Like I can barely eat it the first time and I can't eat it a second time. I think a lot of those kinds of very basic physiological and emotional experiences are just a part of what it means to lose someone suddenly. It's a massive disruption to your brain, to your body, let alone to your emotions and your soul. Looking back, you know, now that it's been a year, what did you need in those early days of trauma that you didn't get? I think I needed space, a lot of space. I remember having trouble concentrating, driving to get my kids to school. And that well-worn path, you know, that morning commute that's so familiar and being at one point at a stop sign and thinking, do I go left or do I go right here? I mean, just even those very basic kinds of things made it hard to concentrate on the bigger things that I was called upon to do. And I think if you can function at all after you lose your partner to sudden loss, then people sort of assume, well, she looks okay on the outside. So everything must be okay on the inside. And so I would have folks ask me scheduling questions or invite me to things, which was super generous to do, but I literally didn't have the brain capacity for it. And moving slowly was something I really, really needed in those first months of grief And it was hard to find that space to do that kind of slow work that I needed to do. You know, the biggest difference between our our losses, you know, to get a cancer diagnosis, then you've got that first season of grief as someone is dying, and then you've got the grief after they have died. But for you, there's no preparation, and it just happens. And suddenly, like, everything is focused and compounded and concentrated I mean, you weren't prepared for that, but maybe you were prepared in some ways. Like, talk about that. Well, I think I knew what to do when Rob died. I knew um, we had had our finances squared away for a long time. We had made our end of life plans. So I knew the things that he wanted. So I was able to laser focus in on those things and get those things done. Having kids, and, and I'm sure you resonate with this, that 
life goes on. I mean, you know, your daughter's got to get to school. And even if you don't want to eat, she's got to eat. There's a sense in which life just keeps pulling you along, whether or not you're prepared for the grief and what kind of a weight that is on you. You have these rhythms that are familiar to you that you just cling to. And I think of you and your daughter too, as you finished that one chapter of being a caregiver and entered into this new chapter of grieving. I wonder if you sensed that too, of just having those normal rhythms of life kind of pull you back into this new life that you're going to lead without Dawn. Yeah. There's this sense in which you feel like everything should just stop and everybody should, well, just like this funeral procession, everybody should pull over and wait until you're ready to, you know, say go again, and then we can all move forward together. But that's not how it happens. I mean, everything else moves forward. And I've got to learn a new script. I've got to figure out new patterns of relating. Who am I now that, you know, I'm no longer a husband? I remember this one moment where I, I'm sitting with a friend and I mentioned being an, a solo parent. And she says, well, actually, you're an only parent. But still, it like struck me like a, the proverbial ton of bricks. I'm like, right, it's just me. Yeah. Dawn and I, uh, we just have one child, and we, you know, did a lot of this together and had some differences of opinion in some areas. And I, I found myself early on trying to think a little bit about what Dawn would do and trying to respect some of her choices. But then it hits me that I just got to do this myself because I'm now responsible for all of the outcomes. And so the decisions are are now totally mine. Yeah. On Friday, I was a we, and on Saturday, I became a me. My entire identity shifted in the space of a few hours. I mean, I call them our kids, and I say we. And sometimes I catch myself now because it's not we anymore. It's just me. For a long time, I thought, well, what would Rob do here? And you know, how would Rob respond? And I still call upon his wisdom a lot in how I make decisions for our family, how I parent. I also came to a place where I realized this would be totally new to him too. It's not like he, because he's gone, he would have some sort of greater wisdom and insight into what I'm dealing with right now. He wouldn't know how to parent kids through grief either. And so I think there's a turning that happens too of turning to your own wisdom and starting to listen to your own voice as valid. I mean, we were married for 17 years and we experienced the beauty of that one flesh life together. And it's really hard when it is rent asunder to figure out who you are now without that person. Does it strike you? I mean, because you, God willing, when you sort of imagine that horizon out there, I mean, there's so much life that you're going to live you know, without this man you love. I try to remind myself that Rob's death is not my death too. Mm. And honestly, it's hard to convince myself of that a lot of time because there's a part of me, a big part of me that died when he died, but I'm still here. My heart's still beating. I'm still breathing. And I've got to make meaning out of what is to come. I think that a lot of contemporary grief support literature resists that idea of making meaning finding purpose, you know, kind of interpreting that through a transformational kind of lens. But I think for believers who really believe that God has ordained our days, that they're written in his book before any of them have come to be, 
I've got to believe that in some holy and mysterious and painful and beautiful way, this was God's intention for me. I mean, I, I tear up just even saying that because I don't want to think about the next 50 years without him. That's just a horrible thought to me. And yet I have to say, God gives good to his children and that must include me now. I'm going to really get you to unpack this God's intention for you part. One of the things that was strangely comforting when Dawn got her cancer diagnosis is that cancer, a biological reality that happens, pancreas cancer, you know, without warning. And it happens, you know, a gene goes left instead of right, or a cell goes left instead of right. But, you know, we never found ourselves saying, God gave Dawn cancer. I don't think that's what you're saying, but I'd love you to unpack a little bit more about God's intention for you as far as Rob's death goes. Well, I think for me, it's less about orderliness or a sense of plan than it is about who God is for me. I grew up in a liturgical tradition. Rob and I attended a liturgical church for a good chunk of our marriage and found real beauty and a sense of home in the mystery of the gospel as it was preached there. And I think about the sacraments of baptism, of communion, the Lord's table. And I think about when I meet the Lord at the table, there was something intimate about coming to this table where you knew that Jesus' body and blood had been shed for you, you know, body broken and, and bloodshed. And, and there's something happened in that moment that you couldn't put your finger on. And I think that. Rob's death is like that for me. I think, I don't know what's happening here in this moment. I can't put my finger on what God is doing in the same way that I can't put my finger on exactly what's happening at baptism or at the Lord's table, but I feel God's presence here. And I know that God is not static, that God is moving. And I can trust that He's faithful, that in the same way that I turn around and walk away from the table. And I feel a sense of being renewed. I'm given hope. I've found comfort in the bread and wine. I think that I'm going to experience those same things too, as I walk now without Rob. As death and, and resurrection people, I mean, we hold tightly to the truth that, you know, death not only can't have the last word, but that somehow it is the way God works to bring about new life. You had said that some things in you died with Rob, and I presume, as you're hinting here, that some things are being reborn and resurrected. I was wondering if you could talk about that some. You know, what died and and what are you seeing reborn? Well, we married when we were really young, and we kind of grew up together in a lot of ways, and it's beautiful. There is a real melding of the two of us together. And I'm discovering a lot of who I am without him now, but I feel like it's a better me than the me that was me before him. I feel like there's wisdom gained from that experience of having to travel through grief to parent children through loss. I'm rediscovering gifts that I sort of put to the side because I was busy being a wife and mom as my primary roles in our family. And certainly, I feel a sense of Rob's pleasure in that. He wants me to succeed in this life without him. I think writing for me has been a piece of that. Shortly after Rob died, I decided I was going to go back to school. So 
in the nights of the fall after Rob died, I sat up every night and I completed a graduate certificate program in nonprofit management. And what was a year long program I did in four and a half months, <laughs> but it, it gave me a singular kind of focus. Like, okay, I can't control anything else in my life, but I can sit down and do my classwork every night. And I think some of those things will bear fruit over the years to come. You know, a lot of people, I think, try not to think about the things that died with mm. their person, but I choose to carry that grief with me. The metaphor that's been really helpful for me is grief as a companion, because I don't take a linear kind of perspective about grief. I don't use words like healed or recovered. I don't right. believe that that's something that actually happens. And so I, I carry my grief with me. So I'm going to do these things. I'm going to live a really good life, Lord willing, in the next years without him. But I'll always carry the pain of his loss with me in that life. Yeah, I, I affirm that. I mean, I think of the grief that continues as my own companion, uh, even though it is easier. She's an easier companion now than in the beginning. I don't want it to go away. I mean, it's a direct derivative of my love. So in some way, the grief keeps the love intact. I want to ask you about the photos. You know, I've got photos of Dawn around the house. And, you know, as time goes by, I'm, especially as I watch my daughter grow into young womanhood, I'm just struck with her being stuck in time. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I don't know what to do with that. You know, we've talked about how life moves forward and, you know, got these photos where she never changes. And while I know the context for all of them, it's like that scene in the Titanic movie where at the end where Leonardo DiCaprio sort of falls away into the ocean and this distance between him and Rose, you know, expands. And are you experiencing any of that? I mean, it's just, oh, been, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I've got pictures of our family all over the house. And I look at them for myself and I, gosh, it's like I hardly recognize myself. I don't have the lines on my face that I do now. I feel like I look different. I feel like I wear my grief. And Mm. those pictures of me are just so innocent. And when you have kids, you see that measurement of time really profoundly, right? right? All of a sudden, you know, the one who was just shoulder high is taller than you now. And, um, And sometimes I look at those pictures and I think he wouldn't recognize us. And it's like a knife to the heart. I mean, I know he would. And yet we're so changed. And there is a pain there, right? To acknowledging that every day that passes by is a day that separates us from him. Do you keep him up? Do you take him down? Do you, what's been kind of your, your rhythm for that? They move around, you know, some, when she first died, it was, you know, the house was something of a shrine. Now things have kind of found different places and, you know, some are in places and I walk by and I'm like, oh, I forgot that picture was there. I mean, it's overwhelming sometimes when I think about, you know, look at a photo, see her with our daughter. And I realize that time is not just stuck in the past, but another sense, just gone. And, you know, when my daughter looks at the photos and she's like, wow, I don't remember that. And, you know, because she was 11 when her mom died and realizing that memory is going to become further and further, it's remarkable and disturbing and and overwhelming. And what was the hardest part or parts, or what have you found to be the hardest about the experience of sudden loss? The hardest part about it is having to wake up the next morning. 
and the next morning after that. You know, we talked about how life stretches out before you and Lord willing, have a lot of time left. But all of that time was sort of allocated. We had plans for retirement. Our kids are getting into high school and we're thinking about, oh, wow, you know, in the next few years, we're going to start to, our nest is going to start to empty. And we started making bucket lists and um, started looking forward to the intimacy of years spent just the two of us together, which, you know, we had kids early on in our marriage. And so there wasn't a whole lot of time at the beginning of our marriage where it was just the two of us. And so we were really looking forward to that. It's all gone. It's gone in a moment. And I don't know how to live without him. In some ways, I feel like I'm back just 21 years old, just graduated from college and figuring out how to balance my checking account for the first time. (laughs) Everything I feel like I'm having to relearn and I'm having to relearn it with the responsibilities of raising a family, of managing a household. And I have to balance the needs of now with forcing myself to look up toward the horizon because it's empty now. And that takes a level of trust that I'll be honest, I never trusted God for the future in that way. I planned my future and I figured, you know, God would kind of alter it over time or sign off on my plans, but I didn't realize that I would have to give my entire future to God as a blank slate. And that's really scary. You know, one of the things as you're, when you're walking through cancer is you, you learn to do each day. You know, my daughter asked, you're going to die. And Dawn said, not today. And so we got into this, I can do today. You know, I found in the months now uh, since Dawn died, reverting to that, you know, I don't even know how to think about the future. It's like, I don't even trust the future anymore. So I'm just going to do today. There's some comfort in that, but at the same time, you have to, I mean, you're a planner, right? You've got to make plans. Uh, Do you just hold it more loosely now? Well, I think I've got to press in against that Mm. attitude. I mean, it's a balancing act, right? I've got to live in today because I know that today is what I'm given, that tomorrow has enough troubles of its own. I mean, one of the pieces of catastrophic loss is that we begin to believe that loss begets other loss. Mm. So- I'm looking for the shoe to drop. When's the next, oh, bad things come in threes. Okay, what is, you know, you can get almost superstitious about this where I don't want to think about the future. I want to cling to the now because it's the known. And so I think there's a leaning into that and saying, okay, now I choose to believe that my feelings are not facts, that loss does not beget other loss, that there's not some sort of domino effect here. And I'm going to make a plan for the future and I think there's a piece of that when you've experienced sudden loss, you really have to do. But then there's also that pulling away and saying, hey, wow, this is really hard. This is an exercise of muscles that have been trained for fight or flight. And I've got to lean away from this sometimes and say, okay, today is what I'm given. I'm going to use today and I'm not going to think about it. But I, I do think it is learning to exercise those faith muscles again. And that's really strenuous work. I'm 15 months out. I'm still not good at planning more than like two or three months in advance. You know, when folks will tell me, oh, what are your summer plans? I think, "Um, you know, if I could just make it through the holidays or if I could just make it through the end of the school year, then we'll be good. And I'll figure out that when it comes about. And I realized that, yeah, I could keep living this way for the rest of my life. But that way of living is also a trauma response and that there are ramifications. You know, I you can't dive deep with relationships when you're always holding back. And 
if I choose not to live like that, you know, in what ways am I sequestering myself away from support or community that will really help me to live again and flourish? I like that. So speaking of planning, can people prepare for sudden loss like you experienced? I think, yeah. You know, we don't live in the way of, if the Lord wills, I will do this or that. That's not how we live. Honestly, our calendars are full. After Rob died, I couldn't believe it. All the things I had to cancel. It was just a a packed life. We don't create a lot of space in our lives. And sudden loss needs space. And so I think creating margin in our lives can be one way that we can prepare for what is unknown. You know, you think about your life and you say, okay, if if one of these, like that kid's game Jenga, if one of these blocks was pulled out, would the whole thing crumble? And if so, what have I built my life on that devastation would crush the entire thing? So I think there's sort of a spiritual and, and psychological way of preparing for loss without being people that are always bracing themselves, right? Yeah. <laughs> bracing themselves against something bad happening. I think there's also a spiritual way of preparing for loss in that we need to reckon with our mortality, you know, and I'm sure that your experience of watching Don die gave you opportunity to not just think about her, but think about you. Do I have all my accounts in order? Have I kept short accounts in my relationships? Where am I at with forgiveness and making amends? Have I done those things that make for peace? I think those are all ways to be prepared. I love the great litany. And there was one line that always just really creeped me out. I'll be honest, of dying suddenly and unprepared. Good Lord, yeah. deliver us. Yes. And I remember after Rob died, asking my pastor, is that me? Was that us? And he said, no, 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 no. That's <laughs> talking about reckoning with God, reckoning with relationships. Okay. Okay. So in a way, Rob's death wasn't sudden and unprepared. And it wasn't sudden and unprepared for him. And it wasn't for me either because we had done those things. I was thinking how among the many things my grief counselor said to me that stuck was, you know, you've experienced the worst. And part of the the reason behind her reminded me of that was to give me a kind of perspective that we can experience loss and all of its awful forms and survive it and somehow see it as part of this life God gives. You know, in Christian theology these days, there's not a whole lot of talk about heaven, right? You know, we talk a lot about human flourishing and making the world the better place. And, you know, some of that I think is to your point about, you know, we don't like to face our mortality and talk about death, but you know, sometimes I'm like, as a preacher, I was like, I should preach more about heaven. You know, I think that would help. And that's what we pray every night together. You know, Lord, come back and make everything new. Mm. Just make it all new. I think when you have seen how bad things can be, that's just your longing is for all things to be made new. What surprised you about your experience of sudden loss? That I want to keep living. Mm. <laughs> I think that's the biggest thing. I do. I really want to keep living and I want to I want to live well. I want to love life. I'll make Rob proud by living life to the fullest. I know that's what he would want for me, for our kids 
And I think that's why I'm surprised because it's so heavy. So many days, it's so heavy. And yet there's this persistence of joy. There's this persistence of hope. Just I experience an inbreaking of that. And I think that's entirely the Holy Spirit that is both comforter and guide. And I'm going to let Rob's death define me in all the ways that his love defined me. I'll wear that grief as a badge of honor as I live life well now without him. Yeah, I love that. I think life has that invitation just built into it, whether it's life on earth or life to come. I mean, life is inviting us forward, beckoning us onward with love to experience the fullness that we get to enjoy in Christ. Yeah, it's certainly not pie in the sky optimism or uh, just hopefulness. It is gospel reality. One of the things grief does for us is it puts us in communities of others whose lives have been transformed by the experience of of loss, and it connects us so deeply, so quickly because of what we've gone through. So we're privileged to expand this conversation beyond Clarissa and myself to others who can continue to fill in all that that grief has to teach us. Yeah, I am so grateful for that community of grievers, people who have experienced different kinds of loss, but are bound together in the pain that we share. And it's an honor to have Eric Reed joining us today. Eric's a pastor outside of Nashville. And Eric, I'm sorry that this is the kind of connection that we had to first make, but I'm so grateful that you're joining us today. Yeah, thank you both for having me. I feel the same way. There's a special kind of community that exists among those who have lost people dear to them, and we can relate to each other beyond words. And yet it's helpful, I think, to put words to what we're experiencing because there's a big community of people who go through things like this. That's so true. Yeah. Would you start by sharing with us a little bit about your son, Caleb, and about your life together? Sure. I'd be happy to. So it's a pretty extensive story. So I'll give you the really quick Cliff Notes version. Caleb was our first child. He was born in 2004. And Caleb had a kidney problem. He had a kidney that had multiple cysts on it. And he was born premature as a result of that. Once he was born and they began the process of trying to drain these cysts off of his kidney, it was determined that they're going to have to get the kidney out. And the idea was, is with one kidney, he could live a perfectly normal life. And so they scheduled him for surgery to remove that bad kidney. But after a couple of days, we knew something was terribly wrong. His vital signs were out of whack. He was swelling up. And we found out shortly after these things began to happen that not only had his bad kidney been removed in that surgery, but his working functioning kidney had been removed as well by accident. And so we were thrown into a tailspin. He's two months old. We're having to make decisions about whether or not to give life-saving procedures, uh, doing things like dialysis. And so that began a process over the next two years of our son being on dialysis and waiting for a kidney transplant. When he turned two, my wife gave him her kidney. She wasn't originally a match, but after a lot of exposure to blood transfusions, And he received her kidney when he was two years old. From the time he was two to the time that he passed, he never, ever had any issues again with his kidneys. That kidney, her kidney functioned perfectly for him. But what we dealt with from that point on 
were the side effects of immune suppressing drugs. They had to give him medicine that would keep his immune system from attacking that transplanted kidney. And as a result of that, he became susceptible and prone to all kinds of things. He had all kinds of other complications and side effects. But for the most part, he looked like a normal kid. He was a little smaller than most kids his size and age. He functioned like everyone else. He enjoyed sports and bike riding and you know all the, all the things. But when Caleb was 13 in uh, the fall of 2017, he had a stroke and he went unconscious. He had a stroke and we didn't know until a day or two later what the source of the cause was, but he contracted something called fungal meningitis. And just to make a long story short, it was the result of the immune system not being able to kick what ours would kick. And so the stroke took away his ability to speak. It took away his ability to use his motor skills that he had previously been able to use. His cognitive ability was still there, but it was slowed. And so the last two years of his life, we were in a very different situation than we were in the first 13. It was a very different life. What ended up happening is his ability to cough and clear fluids out of his lungs was hindered once he had that stroke. Those two years really took a toll on his lungs. And so when we arrived at December, uh, he was hospitalized and we thought it was a UTI. Instead, his lungs tanked. And after a couple of weeks, there was no recovering. We realized he's not going to recover. And so that's when we had to make a decision about whether or not to put him through further surgery and further limitations of quality of life or to let him pass. And because of our theological convictions pertaining what awaits him and you know, because of his faith in Christ, we felt that it was more honoring and loving to him to not put him through another surgery. And so uh, on December 1st, he passed and we've been for the last year dealing with the void of his life that had been so constant around us, you know, before that. As I have experienced grief, I've often thought about the 17 years that Rob and I enjoyed in marriage. And I've looked back on those and thought, you know, if only I could have known, if I knew I would have done things differently. And, and there's a sense where looking back, I feel like I would have had more wisdom, the wisdom that really grief has given me. And from the very beginning, your life with Caleb was touched by grief. From the early days in the hospital where you wondered if this would be the end, or even in those years where life was really good and you saw him on the soccer field and grief maybe seemed further away, I'm curious how how you walked with grief for those years. I mean, it certainly couldn't have been something that just disappeared altogether when he became healthy for a while. That's a great point. We lived with the constant knowledge that every day was a gift, not a right. And we had to wrestle with that early on. So, you know, when he was a couple of days removed from that surgery and we weren't sure what was going to happen, we weren't out of the woods. Uh, my wife had a really hard time even being in their same room where he was at. I mean, it was just devastating. And I remember going in there one morning, it was a Saturday morning, and I had my Bible in hand. And at this point in my life, I had never experienced any pain or grief or suffering. So I had never had to grapple with the theology of suffering. In fact, I was still pretty new in my faith at this point in terms of being serious about being a disciple. And I think I had this unspoken belief that somehow or another, if I was just a really faithful Christian, 
you know, God was going to keep the water smooth. And all of a sudden we were rocked with, regardless if this turns out the way we want it to, this is never going to be okay. Kidney transplants don't even last forever, even if we get one. So this will be a lifetime for him of struggle. And I didn't know how to comfort my wife. You know, I'd never read on it. I'd never studied it. Hadn't been to seminary yet. So I'm just flapping, honestly. So I went with my Bible to his room and and I prayed, God, I need to hear something. I need to know something. And, you know, I flipped through the scriptures and I got to the book of Daniel. And to my embarrassment, you know, the only thing I remember about the book of Daniel was from Sunday school, Daniel in the lion's den, you know, growing up. And so I didn't have a clue what the book of Daniel was about. So I started skimming like I had been doing Daniel 1. And I was rocked with what I read because God gave over Judah to Nebuchadnezzar and to the Babylonians. He gave them into his hands and their lives were thrown upside down. They're sent away. They're given new identities. And like I was immediately hooked because I could feel the unsettledness of what Daniel 1 represented, right? That everything changed in a moment. And that's the way my life felt right then. I felt like everything's changed. All these dreams about having a son that's going to be in the yard playing ball and watch him get married. And all of a sudden, all of those things are just being shattered in front of me. And it felt like the rug was being ripped from my feet. And so I was hooked. I wasn't even a preacher yet then. I wasn't a pastor. So this wasn't prepared for a sermon. And I certainly wasn't preparing it to talk on a podcast one day. But I wrote down five things and had a notebook full of things to share with my wife that were survival for us and how to work through this. And my five points were, number one, God's able to save us, right? And then it follows it in verse 18 with, but even if he doesn't, we won't bow down. And that shook me. I had never in my life been confronted with the idea that God might not rescue. It may not be his will to rescue us from this situation. And even if he didn't, he's worthy of my worship and to be glorified through my life. And I had to talk to my wife about it and like, what does this look like for us to know that God can rescue us, but not hold him responsible to rescue us from this? The third thing I took away is that God was in the fire. He was in the furnace with them. And I knew that God's presence would be with us. And that was comforting. The fourth thing I took away that the satraps, the prefix, the governors, everybody watched the fourth figure in the fire and they were stunned by what they saw. And I knew in that moment, from that point on, our lives would be a window for others to be looking into to see God, just like those who were looking at the furnace. I knew that our friends, our family, uh, people at our church were going to watch how we handled this and draw the conclusions about God's faithfulness and goodness. And then the fifth and final point was implicit in the text, not necessarily explicit, but you never see Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego alone. And I knew at that moment we needed to not isolate ourselves, but we need to be in community. That has guided us all those years. So the healthy years and the sick years, it was always there. That's a powerful way to see that story. But I am curious how, in the ways in which God sort of purposed this story in Daniel for uh, their goodness, his glory, and that you felt like some of that was true for you too. Yeah, absolutely. We believe that God is sovereign, and that means over everything and nothing and no one can thwart his will. But as you guys know, when you go through the fire, when you when you have suffering, the sovereignty of God is comforting, but then you also have to grapple with the goodness of God with that. And God is allowing us to go through this. God has purposed this. Not one day is granted as a right to us with Caleb. Every day is a gift. And so 
when I would find myself getting fearful about what happens if this happens next year, what happens if this happens, I would have to just pump the brakes and say, his life belongs to God and it's completely in God's hands. And Psalm 139.16 played a big part in really anchoring us and rooting us in that reality. I try not to say Caleb lived a short life because that implies he was somehow guaranteed or had deserved a longer life. No, he lived the life that God purposed for him. His days were written in his book before one ever came to be. Caleb's days were written before a doctor ever made a mistake. And, you know, that requires trusting God because I might have wrote those days differently, but I'm not God. And so I have to submit myself. And that's how we had to approach it, even in the healthy years. But it certainly sustained us when the stroke came and then ultimately his passing. You know, Eric, I think of your family as you talk about this. You know, Daniel and I have talked a lot about how we grieve on our own, but we're also parenting alongside of that. And I wonder what your children's experience has been as they have grieved the loss of their brother, as they watched knowing that inevitable destiny, you know, that his life would be short. What has that been like to lead your children? And what's that experience been like for them to watch their brother die? Yeah, we had lots of conversations and still do. My girls are 11 and 7. And those previous years, we talked regularly just the reality. There's no promise or guarantees in life. And they knew Bubba's situation and they knew what he was dealing with. And so we didn't try to shelter them from that. And we didn't try to coddle them. They had to learn to see all of what the scriptures teach about afflictions and pain. And in this life, there will be trouble. And they've seen it firsthand and they've watched it. And in their own way, they've experienced it. You know, they love their brother and yet they've experienced seeing him in the hospital for weeks at a time. And they've had to watch us really cling to the Lord. We just really had to live it on our sleeves and show dependence to them as we teach them why theologically. You know, it, it was super hard for them. The day he passed, they were at church. He, he passed on Sunday. When we knew that this was going to be it, we had my brother-in-law and sister-in-law bring them up to the hospital. And when they got there, I walked them down the hallway. And before we got to his room, you know, I got down on a knee and I crying, you know, Bubba's super sick and he's not going to get better this time. And he's going to be with Jesus. You know, he's going to go be with Jesus today. He's going to die. And they cried and, and we went in and we were with him and they were holding his hand as he breathed his last breath. So, you know, they've had to experience things at that age that the majority of their friends haven't. And in some ways that's, I hate it. And in some ways I wouldn't replace it because I think it's going to make them into the women that God wants them to be ultimately, which are deep, faithful kind of women whose faith is rooted deep because it's had to be. You've shared some super beautiful and powerful revelations. Uh, this whole journey has, has been for you. I'm, I'm wondering what has surprised you in your grief? I think preparing yourself for loss and experiencing the loss are two totally different things. You know, for 15 years, I had prepared for the possibility that I would bury my son. But when it became reality, there's a heaviness there. So I would say the last year, what has surprised me has been the heaviness 
I would also say the grace that God, and I, man, I promise you, I'm not here for the Christian cliches, but the grace that God has given my wife and I and my children and sustained us. There's a lot of scenarios where if we would have been overwhelmed with our sorrow to the point of being paralyzed from living, it would have been even harder than it has been. And God has spared us that. He has given us healthy amounts of sorrow and grief, and we've cried our share of tears, but we've been held faithfully. I love that. I When you say we're held, I mean, I think that's Daniel in my prayer for anyone who listens, that wherever they find themselves in their grief journey, that they would sense that, that they are held. There's an intimacy to that sorrow and to know that Jesus is present with you in your sorrow, that he understands that a good father carries you. Those are all gifts that we discover in grief. Yes, absolutely. Jesus, when you gonna wake up? When you gonna wake up and calm this raging sea? Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the show, we'd love it if you could subscribe, rate it, and leave us a review in iTunes. If you have feedback for us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at podcasts at christianitytoday.com. Surprised by Grief is a production of Christianity Today. It's produced by Mike Cosper. It was written by Daniel Harrell and Clarissa Mall. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Our music is by the Porter's Gate. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon. So Jesus, when you're gonna wake up, when you're gonna wake up and calm this raging sea. This episode was brought to you in part by the Enneagram and Marriage Podcast, an outreach dedicated to bringing joy, strength, intimacy, and purpose to couples seeking growth. Be sure to visit enneagramandmarriage.com to find your chemistry together again, or for the very first time.